This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about the book industry. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today, I'm talking to George Slowick, the owner and operator of Publishers Weekly, among other things. I think that's not the only thing you do, but that's what we're mainly here to talk about. Publishers Weekly, basically the oldest and main trade magazine for publishing. I think most of the people listening to this are familiar with it, known as PW comes out weekly, has now been going. This is the 150th anniversary, so that seemed an auspicious occasion. And not many things in in life get to be 150 years old. So through many iterations, it's really nice to have you here, George. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, your involvement with PW. Uh, you're, you have some history with it and, uh, your, you know, what it is that you're doing with PW and your kind of information publishing for the book trade, um, all the, I mean, because sure. there are a lot of spinoffs to it now. It's not just PW, the magazine, there are all kinds of other projects that you operate within the uh, uh, rubric of Publishers Weekly. That's right. Um, my involvement goes back to, uh, my direct involvement with Publishers Weekly goes back to 1985 when, uh, I was on a team of people at Reed Elsevier. Uh, then it was actually Connors and, and just Reed, um, that acquired Valker, the parent company from, um, uh, or acquired it for Reed Elsevier. And uh, once I got familiar with the publication, and I knew it, you know, uh, from the industry, and, and parenthetically, my career is in magazine publishing, not in book publishing, um, but it's led me twice to the book industry with uh, two stints at Publishers Weekly. Uh, so in um, 85, we acquired it for Reed Elsevier, and it became part of the magazine division of Connors. And a few years later, I became the publisher of it myself because I had wanted to move out of finance and into uh, management of publications. And so in 89, I believe it was, uh, I began at Publishers Weekly and served in that role for a few years before going on to other things. And in 2010, returned uh, in the form of an acquisition uh, for myself and my partner. And it was just a total serendipitous fluke that had occurred. I had just merged the American prospect with a think tank called Demos and uh, had been operating out of DC. I was thanking the investment banker for hooking me up with a, a stint on the uh, potential acquisition of Business Week. And he said, oh, you should buy Publishers Weekly. And uh, I said, why would you say something like that? I, I honestly thought he had had more than enough to drink, uh, as had I. Uh, <laughs> you know, we were celebrating. And um, he called me a week later and said, did you ever call up about Publishers Weekly? And I said, no, I thought you were joking. And uh, he said, no, call the broker, who I knew. And um, it came together. Um, initially, I was rebuffed. I always said, it's never going to happen um, because you don't have a platform and you're not ready to go as is. And I said, that doesn't concern me. And um, they waited a couple weeks, called back and said, you have two weeks um, to look at it. And that's exactly what we had. 
and we closed the deal in three days. A rather remarkable turn of events. Yeah, it wasn't, um, you know, you sort of think about that period of time and over the last 20 years, maybe that magazines, traditional magazines have been pretty challenged. Um, not just trade magazines, but all kinds. And, but trade, you know, uh, PW suffering from some of the same challenges probably or facing the same challenges that um, general interest magazines have faced, you know, with a changing uh, landscape, technology, et cetera. And like a lot of media properties, PW had gone through multiple owners over a period of time. And I think, you know, wasn't I mean, at that point when you bought it, weren't they? Um, kind of close to shutting down all the magazines, weren't they? Uh, when when I bought it, it was at the end of a, a long transactional period for Reed Elsevier. They had decided to exit the magazine, the trade magazine business, uh, which was largely built on um, a traditional trade publisher called Connors, um, and had done a huge roll-up. They had 140 magazines by the time they decided to exit. And they were uh, very much feeling the, the brunt of the internet, uh, particularly on what are called controlled circulation publications, whereby they're given away free based on your qualifications as a reader, not um, right. based on subscription revenue. And Reed decided to sell its portfolio in 2008. It had an offer of $2 billion for the portfolio from uh, Bain. Uh, they said, well, that's not enough. And <laughs> uh, the following month, uh, the market crashed. Uh, and, you know, in 2008, the world came tumbling down. And uh, they said, okay, no, no, we'll do the deal. And Bain said, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> About 1.2. And um, the deal fell apart. It took another couple of years for them to wait for the market to rebound and for them to regroup. And then they put the portfolio up um, compartmentalized by industry. So Publishers yeah, Weekly okay. was paired with um, Library Journal and School Library Journal, which had been part of its um, history. Uh, they actually grew out of Publishers Weekly uh, back in the early days of, of um, when Fred Leopold started the magazine. So, um, and what happened there and why the tip off to me was particularly uh, serendipitous is the investment bank that was selling that portfolio, uh, had a buyer for the library magazines who was media source, who was really just interested in the children's title, the school library journal, but took library journal to make the deal happen. For them to unbundle Publishers Weekly from that transaction at that point was um, more trouble than it was worth to them. So they would have folded Publishers Weekly uh, along with, they, they right. did in fact fold 23 magazines um, on March, or wrote them off as of March 31st, 2010. And PW was in that, that pile. Right, you saved yep. it essentially then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a, it was very much a white knight situation. I had to buy it as is, um, and we closed the deal in three days, which is unheard of in M and A uh, mergers and acquisition uh, transactions. But they had set it up in such a way that I could lease the employees for sixty days, and then so they could maintain their benefits, and then we had to be off all of their platforms and out of their space. 
So we had 60 days to find new offices mm. in New York to right. rebuild the website from scratch. Uh, it was nascent, you know, 2010, but nonetheless important. And, uh, you know, we only acquired uh, direct employees, that is advertising and editorial employees. We had no financial structure, no circulation uh, structure, no HR, finance, uh, production, et cetera. So they all had to be roped together very quickly. So maybe let's go back and talk a little bit. I mean, you, I know you know the history of Publishers Weekly probably better than almost anybody else. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the role that PW had as you see it, you know, the most important role kind of in the historical period, let's say the 20th century, late 20th century, um, and um, moving into the present, you know, how things are different today um, and what you see as the evolving role of a trade magazine um, in a, you know, in, in a kind of more technologically driven landscape, even though the book business is still dealing with a lot of bricks and mortar businesses? Well, you know, in its initiation back in 1872, it was founded by a, a, a person with bibliographic um, history and background. And uh, at that point in time, it was um, more or less a collective effort of the publishing industry uh, in that they would publish the lists of all forthcoming books. And that tradition uh, lasted in the form of what were called announcement issues, which we still publish, but it was uh, really a place one had to be well into the early 90s. And then it was, you know, post the advent of, of the internet that the business uh, started to change. Um, it introduced bestsellers in the 1900s, which were an important tool for the industry uh, in terms of identifying books and, and promoting them. Along the way, uh, founders of Publishers Weekly created the Caldecott and Newberry Awards in children's publishing and Children's Book Week and the Kerry Thomas Award, which is an award that went to publishers of particular social merit. Um, all these things, in many ways, designed to help um, publishers bring their books to market. And in the 40s, it began book reviews. Uh, initially, they were more descriptive and, and less critical. Uh, but the volume of titles being published had already become so overwhelming uh, back then that there needed to be some discernment uh, that a bookseller or librarian could turn to to say, okay, those are ones I can consider. They couldn't very well read the volume of books we were reviewing, which for most of its history have hovered around nine, ten thousand 10,000 books a year to this day that we still review. And so it's an important tool for everyone in the industry, whether it's an agent looking for uh, foreign rights or uh, you know someone in the movie business. Um, or publishers in different formats uh, that the main publisher doesn't cover. Well, noticeably, those reviews, because, and of course, it's now even more vast numbers of books. You know, I think I'm thinking back to maybe the 70s, 1970s, not 1870s, but the 1970s, <laughs> yeah. when probably I think 38,000 books were published 
in a year, most of that decade, roughly, you know, and, and it was, it's grown ever since, but now we're at probably 800,000 or 900,000, or maybe even a million or more than a million, depending on how you count. Well, actually, well more. Um, we're, you know, as the last data I could find, and I was just recently looking for it, uh, just a Balker's um, issuance of ISBN numbers, which is a little understated uh, because it no longer includes the Amazon mm-hmm. environment, which they started their own uh, book identifiers with uh, AMC codes. But um, in 2019, there were 1.7 million self-published books or ISBNs uh, issued. So to give you an idea. And that does include, um, I think Amazon, at least through the Kindle environment, they are including ISBN numbers. So a large part of that number is right. um, their titles as well. But probably the, tr- the traditional trade, and by that I mean uh, books sold commercially in bookstores and carried in libraries, probably is in the um, order of fifty to 60,000 titles itself. So there's been a huge proliferation over time. And now with um, translation moving more fluidly around the world, you know, more books are, are coming in from other destinations. It's always been a very small number, um, but now it's growing. Well, and, and it makes and your reviews more and more crucial because there are, well, not only more titles to choose from and harder you know, probably fewer that people would be able to run across to find even. Uh, but there's also the issue that, um, the, um, that people use the reviews, uh, in ways that are, um, it's not just for buying books in stores or even as you suggested for film, it's, it also, because there are so few, um, review outlets in existence anymore, um, that, reviewers sometimes use your reviews as a guide for what they should be looking at because reviewers can't keep up with everything. So you're kind of screening through um, a range of books to enable other reviewers uh, to have a better chance of choosing books that they'd be interested in. Um, I mean, it's for publishers, this is very... That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, but for publishers, it's, this is a... That, that, that occurred, you know, uh, even, uh, back, you know, as far as the onset of the reviews in terms of even when there were more book outlets uh, in newspapers particularly, um, you know, again, just the human capacity of getting through uh, X number of books was a a pretty critical um, gatekeeper role for Publishers Weekly. The media influence was always a significant one. And also for line producers at TV shows and radio shows, and of course now podcasts and everything else. What has changed is I'd say there are actually way more reviewers than there have ever been, not necessarily with particular credibility. And so the importance of the brand is, is really uh, one of its main assets. Uh, and to me, it's a central one to protect is that you can rely you know, our, our reviews are not bylined. They are, however, written by a human being, <laughs> one, and whose opinion, uh, you know, is, is carried forth. But we painstakingly select who uh, we review or have as reviewers, and there are some 500 of them. Uh, and 
produce the reviews under our, our collective byline, um, which, um, you know, allows for book jacket copy for uh, the publishers, uh, including internationally. And I, I was once speaking in China at the Beijing Book Fair and mentioned um, that we were digitizing the archive and that, uh, you know, all the reviews would be uh, behind a paywall and set off a firestorm afterwards of Chinese publishers coming to me and saying, we, we, we can't use the reviews anymore, <laughs> you know, for our jackets. <laughs> I said, no, 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 no that's not, not a, a problem. You can still extract from the reviews. But um, we now have, um, I think, upward of 400,000 reviews in our database, and they relate to some 1.2 or 3 million products because books now uh, appear in so many different formats. I mean, they have, over time, grown in the number of formats. In fact, when we bought Publishers Weekly, uh, it was a month before the launch of the um, smartphone. And, uh, you know, there was this fear that ebooks, particularly mm-hmm. delivered, you know, via smartphone ebook readers. And this wasn't the first uh, attempt at that. I mean, Sony had an attempt back when I was publisher in the late 80s to have the follow on to the Walkman uh, be a, uh, yeah, I think they called it um, Bookman. Yeah, it was Bookman. Yeah. And that was going to replace books. Well, by 2010, it was at a pitched fervor. And the chicken littles of the world were running around saying, oh, it's the end of print as we know it. And, you know, everything is going to be electronic. And the same happened when um, radio occurred, when uh, television yeah, occurred. Yeah. You know, why would you have to read a book if you can watch it? Uh, it, it? You know, so every technology has created a new fear of the end of bookstores uh, in the books. In fact, um, when department stores started carrying books, uh, bookstores feared it was the end of them at that point because, you know, the department stores were mass and they could, they could be everywhere. So it, it, it's, it's fun, actually, to go through the history. I'm a, sort of a rabbit hole type person in terms of data. I, once I go into the hole, I'm there for a while. And um, I love the fact that the archive is available um, all 150, well, 148 of the 150 years, last two are in the works, always. Um, but to just you know look back at the historical references of the demise of the industry, um, you know, happening with predictability, it seems like once a decade. And as as I said, you know, the um, the emergence of, of Apple into the arena and later all of the smartphones uh, was and ebooks now had a distribution mechanism through Kindle and Nook and all the other players that um, manifested themselves. Not many lasted, but uh, you know, it was feared that it was the end of books as we know them. Well, it's true that there has been an it, it, almost every technology form creates that kind of dynamic. I think we can even go back deeper into history. You can see that in the period when the physical, when when writing was invented, um, the oral, you know, the oral historians of that era, the thinkers and and um, philosophers, all said that. Uh, writing would destroy human minds and it would make it, you know, that people wouldn't be able to 
think as clearly. And of course, every, you know, you always look at what you know as good and what is new as frightening to a certain, or at least some people do. Some people embrace the new, some, but a lot, there's a kind of natural conservatism in culture. Um, so that we have that re repetition of fear of the, uh, of the unknown, uh, and, and books have proven themselves to be remarkably, uh, long lasting as a form. Um, you know, they're powerful and meaningful and useful. And that's part of the reason why we still have them. Um, but I think also the, uh, the changes that occur do cause, um, the technology changes, distribution changes, cultural changes affect the book industry. And you can probably see in your archive that sort of evolution of um, ideas and thinking and, you know, certain things persist and other things will change. Uh, the core values stay the same, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the technology changes. So, um, elements of our business will change in ways that are, you know, at this point, maybe unpredictable. But, um, but of course, today, I think a lot of uh, people in the book industry feel like there are challenges that are new um, or more extreme than we've ever seen before. Like now, right now, the challenge of paper supplies and uh, printing capacity uh, caused sure. by the pandemic are really um, creating uh, real t tensions for publishers and ultimately they will for readers because you're going to see book prices go much higher over the next two or three years, I think. And, um, you know, and of course there is the thinking that maybe as if print prices are higher, high enough, that may cause, uh, more people to read digitally or as you see in some, uh, other media forms where you have to pay for, uh, uh, access like with Netflix, if the price keeps on going up at a certain point, some people fall away, they stop paying for Netflix. They go to some free, um, you know, free channel or, you know, whatever it is that are the other options. So there's still, uh, you know, like concerns that publishers have today that are different from the concerns that publishers 50 years ago had. Um, and, but in our individual periods they always do appear to be uh existential whether they are or not that's a you know we don't know yet but um right it, right. it is kind of uh, well we're currently working on a um, 150th anniversary issues to celebrate the the sesquicentennial of, of pw uh while we've technically passed the exact date which was january 18th uh, we're putting out this issue in in April as a, a, a special edition, and focusing on the last twenty five years because uh, Publishers Weekly has traditionally published a anniversary uh, edition every twenty five years, and the change the velocity of change in the last twenty five years has certainly been the most remarkable uh, in the period at least of Publishers Weekly's existence in terms of uh, just so many market forces that continue to change. Uh, we passed the ebook hysteria, and then uh, you know, uh, audiobooks, uh, sudden mm -hmm. and podcast have become an extraordinary market. Um, and it depends on how you look at it. You know, um, for publishers, they've adapted to all right. Here's a new platform and another uh, technology to embrace. Um, 
bookstores, unfortunately, are left out of the audio market for the most part. Uh, they're finding ways to adapt to that. Um, supply chain issues are quite immediate right now, uh, but uh, publishers are re- relocating their uh, printing to different countries. It takes a while for capacity to come online because um, of the you know what it takes to to build a printing plant, but. Uh, it's it's happening in far flung spaces. Um, some is coming back to the states, but then there's a capacity issue of, of the current printers being able to produce. Uh, I don't think any of it speaks to the end of print nor the end of, of publishing. Uh, it will be a supply and demand uh, formula, and for for publishers weekly over time, we've adapted to those various. Um, you know, platforms and really are platform agnostic. I mean, while I'm um, personally someone tied to the print and, and a love of the print, the tactile involvement with print, I never believed it, w- it would end um, per se. And we've continued to produce a weekly publication during the last two years of the pan- pandemic. March 11th will be the anniversary of our office shutdown. And it, it continues to amaze me that we were able to produce a weekly print publication as well as daily newsletters, 24-7, 365 website, and podcasts and ebooks and this, that, and the other. I once counted, and we had 574 issue closings in a given year because of the various newsletters and the, you know, the deadlines for those and uh, you know, we now, um, virtually everything is digital first, uh, including the reviews. They appear first online. And they ap- appear with different levels of access. With the number that we have, they're, of course, now interesting to uh, consumers. Um, and a consumer, once they uh, clock the name of Publishers Weekly and get past the fact that we're not Publishers Clearinghouse, <laughs> uh, which they know better, uh, they start to see it on most books they have in their library because there's book jacket copy. Just, you know, if you think of the billions of exposures that Publishers Weekly's name has had on um, uh, trade books, it's a rather amazing um, presence. And so once people, you know, get it in their vernacular that, oh, Publishers Weekly is that one that's on the books, then they see it all the time. I mean, I've had that experience over and over uh, through the years of, um, you know, people coming to recognition that way. So we get a, a, a nice uh, organic traffic to our website. We have a different landing page that consumers come through versus uh, the trade because they come for different reasons and at different times. We used to have the, the sole domain, for example, in reviews uh, of not the sold. I mean, the Library Journal did books and Kirkus uh, reviewed books pre-pub. Now every blogger can get a book pre-pub. Uh, you know, they can get the um, the ebook ahead of time and start um, talking about it. And publishers have adjusted to wanting pre-sales, you know, versus kind of locking down the press till the moment of pub date. Um, same with you know the movie business simultaneously releasing um, via streaming and live in theaters. Uh, 
you know, it seems counterintuitive, but when it all um, is happening the way it is, you know, you adjust and adapt. Amazon was a huge influence in the industry, uh, just in terms of disintermediating just about every step of the phase, you know, phase of the process and um, continuing to do so in different ways. You know, certainly they're a big player in the audio arena now. And that innovation has led to further publisher innovation and uh, in a good way when it's all, you know, it's hard along the way at times. Uh, but um, we've continued to be, and it's one thing I'm, I'm proud of our team is we've continued to be uh, flexible and uh, fleet footed in terms of moving with the various changes in the marketplace and really having a core value in the belief in content and um, the value of, of credible content, both from a book perspective and from our own uh, perspective. We branched into self-publishing, which was only beginning uh, in 2010. I mean, there had always been vanity presses and, you know, the Beatrice Potters of the world and various, you know, phenomenon, but not... Um, to the level that it exists today. So in 2010, we started uh, dipping our toe into those waters, reviewing those books. We have a separate division called Book Life that services that market. And um, But we never chose to sell reviews because we really felt, while that would be a, a somewhat of a windfall, it would also um, be in conflict with our journalistic integrity. Um, and not something we wanted to pursue. Well, you, yeah, you've innovated in a lot of different areas. I don't, we don't actually have time to cover them all, but I wanted to mention one other thing, which is, I think, pretty interesting that you've put your name on this book called the 2022 Publishers Weekly Book Publishing Almanac, a masterclass in the art of bringing books to readers. And it is a, a massive for sure. It's, um, over 700 pages long, um, and a pretty interesting compendium of information about the publishing industry, kind of snapshot of today, um, you know, somewhat uh, uh, historical, but mostly trying to cover the kind of range of activities that goes into publishing. And it's really interesting to see all of the different elements of publishing that exist. Um, you know, it, it, for a lot of people, I think it's even if we're in it, we don't think about how complex it is all the time and how many parts there are, how many moving parts there are in the industry and how many different areas of activity are included in publishing, not just in books, but in overall and in kind of information publishing that falls under the rubric of book publishing. So I think it's a pretty interesting collection. I've been able to delve into it a little bit, but not very uh, not very comprehensively because it's so big, <laughs> but I want to, you know, what, what prompted? Well, it, it, it's meant to be an almanac uh, in the traditional sense. In fact, uh, the editors at Skyhorse uh, come from the World Almanac uh, background and uh, it will be produced annually. Huh. So it will evolve. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that's more uh, a reference tool than a read through. You know, something will pick your interest and off you go in, in that rabbit hole, as I, I like to say. 
Um, I've only managed to dip in and out of it myself. I'm not an editor. I'm a business guy. Uh, but I, like we were talking before uh, we came on on uh, live, uh, I tend to read with an editorial eye and have to line edit as I go. So, um, you know, it's a terrible habit. It makes... Uh, publicity people and copywriters crazy that I do that. Uh, so I try not to, but I still do it. Uh, there were certain sections of the book I was very, you know, personally felt needed to be uh, particularly um, anal about. Uh, and a lot of it is content that appeared in Publishers Weekly over the year. The reason we're able to then repackage it is Again, it's a reference tool, uh, whereas when it's happening live, it's more of a manager right. business uh, uh, tool. Well, it's also context. It's, and, a, it's uh, context. So, you know, by putting it into a book, you give exactly. us a different view of ourselves. And also, to be fair, we're all really busy in the book business and elsewhere. Uh, probably a lot of the stuff that is in this book may have already been published in the magazine, but we might not have noticed it or even focused on it because as you said we're busy in our work lives and we're skimming information a lot of the time and just looking for that little piece that one nugget that is really gonna you know be useful today whereas when you read it in a book <laughs> you know it has a greater meaning that's the whole point of what we do it, it's one of the huge huge challenges of the internet itself is it's an inch deep and miles wide you know, where you're able to dip into it or organize from is often a challenge, um, you know, that you just don't know that you've gotten the experience of the year or of the week. And, and so that's one of the, the beauties of, of, of print uh, is it is an organizing yep. factor uh, to uh, an experience. And, it, you know, it has a, a front cover and a back cover. So, you know, you've, you've gotten from one end to the other. Whereas uh, I would uh, suggest you can't do that on the internet, even <laughs> with right. all the organizing <laughs> tools that are there. You know, Google will give you the first 10 sightings that they feel are most important, along with five ads. Um, but you'll also notice there are, you know, well, thousands of pages about that particular topic, right. or no matter millions. what it is. It could be even millions. Seems like, and, yeah. and as you said, it's, it's, exactly. it's, it's yeah. uh, information with no beginning and no end. Um, and no way. And edit, you know, what editing does is it provides somebody, whether you, know, you may not agree all the time, but the editorial function is an organizing principle. You know, it's, it's uh, an, a yeah. way of uh, filtering. And we need to filter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more than ever. Uh, you know, that, that discernment and, um, you know, the, the talent that goes into uh, the editorial process is really so valuable and, and something we, we can lose sight of on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and you can live in the insular world of your own opinion by only you know, being exposed to that, which right. uh, you agree with. And that's to me, a, a, a very difficult and often dangerous aspect of what technology has brought to the world, uh, in terms of just this ability to insulate, uh, and the appearance, at least visually that everything's equal. 
right on on you know on the internet right. or in the, the the world of streaming and and content you know there's so many options available that it's hard to get down to the thing that's worth paying any uh, time with right well it's the uh, the lack of hierarchy of value and yeah. while that there's something to be said for the flattening uh, because uh, hierarchies are sometimes artificial and they're sometimes inaccurate and they sometimes reflect values that you may not feel comfortable with, but no hierarchies of value, no way of understanding and creating meaning um, does allow people to create their own meaning. Sometimes then we don't have shared values anymore. And, that's correct, and, and if, that's, a, that's a real challenge. Well, it's impossible to have a culture if you don't agree on the basic values of what that culture means. Well, and as Justice Breyer just yesterday, you know, on his retirement, or maybe it was the day before, uh, time blurs as well, uh, you know, was talking about um, a belief system based on fact. And uh, we're now sadly in need of a set of facts that we can all agree to. And right. that may never happen again, where we're all, you know, in a collective belief that these are the facts. Um, because as famously stated, there are alternate facts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, 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 I don't see it changing or coming back. Uh, but it does make, to my eye at least, the importance of brand and credibility all the more meaningful, that you really have to protect that. And one of the challenges for, for us is um, freedom to publish. Um, as a, uh, It's a finer point than, say, freedom of speech or freedom to congregate and all First Amendment issues. But freedom to publish is um, a, a challenge in terms of where do, do we as Publishers Weekly draw the line. Uh, in terms of what ought to be able to be published. You know, the ACLU is hugely under pressure uh, for some of the cases that it's traditionally, you know, it's been fundamental to their existence. And, you know, their agreement to defend speech that's not popular or right. not um, necessarily the nicest of speeches, but, you know, has a right to exist. Uh, that's been perverted in many places into uh, tools of, uh, of uh, difference rather than of, of, you know, agreeing to a principle. Right. Well, no, and we have to believe in the publishing industry I've always felt was that you have to support unpopular opinion because Correct. your opinion might be unpopular at some point that we're, you know, I forget who said it and I can't remember the exact quote, but it's, you know, I will defend your right to be wrong and to say things that I know are untrue because speech and, and the ability to, uh, to share your ideas is really important. And that's, you know, if it's basically a, um, a competition of ideas, and you, right. you can't have competition if somebody's ideas are being prevented from being shared. And of course, that's what this, now we're faced with this massive uh, impulse to ban books, uh, which, you know, comes up periodically in human history, but it's not 
it's it we've lived in a world where that wasn't an ongoing threat on a large scale it's been going on for the last 50 years uh uninterrupted in a lot of places but That's not right. on a massive scale and now it's much more uh uh it's being used as a tool a political tool in the way that uh you know in a way that i think we've never seen before at least in the you know in the modern era and uh i think it it's going to be a challenge for everybody in the publishing industry to face because the banning of one book is this you know it's the slippery slope it doesn't matter what book it is it doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not you don't want to see books banned anywhere we're of like mind in that regard <laughs> <laughs> we're also um we can see each other the others can't see us but we're of a different generation uh and that's the, you know the the pressure that something like aclu is coming yeah. under that in this new context of uh, information flow being so free you know is it still correct to be so fluid yeah. and i fundamentally fundamentally believe it has to be or um you know as a as an industry as a publication we're not representing what we should right. know, people should be able to um, state their opinion not hate but their opinion right no i think we agree and i think the it, it's going to become important to and you have a platform for that with pw i think you'll be in a position where you have the ability to um, defend those essential rights of that publishers have to stand for so i'm glad that you mentioned that because it wasn't something i'd been thinking of in this context but i think it's really important um well, George, I want to thank you for taking some time and uh, spending a little time talking about PW, the history of um, the, the magazine, but also much more. I'm really glad we got a chance to talk and uh, wish you luck in the 150th anniversary <laughs> year you. of Publishers Weekly. Now, this has been Publishing Talks. I've been talking to George Slowick about Publishers Weekly and publishing as an industry. Thank you so much.